Peter Thiel writes about this in his book called One. And that is understand your primary core product. That's not hard. That's not, I'm sorry, that's not easy to figure out. Understand what your primary core product is and then spend your life focusing on becoming world-class at delivering that. And the key word there is focus. Welcome to The In Factor. I'm Rebecca White, and I'm pleased you've joined us today to hear another story of entrepreneurial perseverance. As the co-founder, co-CEO of Big B Coffee, the third largest coffee franchise in the U.S., Mike McFall has amassed an incredible wealth of knowledge and experience in building a purpose-driven and sustainable business. In our conversation, Mike shares his personal philosophy of entrepreneurial leadership and the pathway he and his company have taken to cultivate a nurturing work environment that empowers individuals to thrive and adapt in the face of challenges. Mike, thank you for joining me today on The In Factor. Great to be here, Rebecca. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, I'm really excited. I just, uh, you know, I was doing a little research. Um, of course, you're an entrepreneur, and we're really excited to hear about Big Big Coffee. Uh, you're the co-founder and co-CEO of that, that business. But I was just uh, noting that you've just published a new book, Grow. Uh, grow your business from chaos to calm, I think. And uh, I think I read that it's the second in a series. So the first one was Grind, which is a great name for a, a coffee uh, a, a coffee guy. And uh, Grow, I'm excited to hear about, about that and about how that applies to your business. And then there'll be a third one, which will be a surprise for us, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm happy, to, happy to talk about it. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a three book series. Uh, you know, I feel good that Two are done because <laughs> that makes right. the three book series a little more legitimate. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's uh, I've really enjoyed it. Good, good. Well, tell us a little bit. Um, you started out as a barista in in a, a coffee shop, I think. In did I was it East Lansing, Michigan? Maybe I think I read. Uh, so take us back. You know, have you always wanted to be an entrepreneur? How did you get to where you are today? And and tell us a little bit about the story. Well, you know, I think going way back, it, it, I grew up in an environment where most of my friends, parents, and my father were all entrepreneurs. And you know, it was kind of this this environment of that's how you that's how you figured out how to make a living. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, um, I was fortunate that way, I think. Uh, and you know, my two of my very best friends growing up, their parents were 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 entrepreneurs and figured out how to make a living, uh, you know, doing that. And then my dad as well. So, you know, it was just sort of in my blood. I don't know that I ever aspired to being an entrepreneur. You know, when you go back, it wasn't like entrepreneurship at that point was a, was a field of study or, you know, the fact that you can get a degree now at many, many universities, uh, or a minor in entrepreneurship is kind of a weird thing, uh, you know, in some ways, because it, it was more of a, a a means to survive <laughs> when it went out in my, in my environment growing up. But, you know, so, so it was in my blood. Um, I never, I never necessarily aspired to it. Uh, and, and I, the, the short version of the story is I was, uh, at the university in East Lansing on a very specific research project, uh, looking to prepare to go back to graduate school. And I, it was only 20 hours a week. So I went around and I applied at all the coffee shops in East Lansing. 
uh, just to supplement a little income. And, you know, I ended up uh, fortunately uh, becoming part of our organization as a barista in our very first store. Uh, we had one store at that point. Uh, and, you know, I remember um, uh, we were doing under 200 cups of coffee a day at that, or under 300 cups of coffee a day at that point in terms of sales. And, you know, now we're selling well over a hundred thousand cups of coffee a day. And so, you know, that, that, the roots of that, uh, starting as a barista and then how I transitioned into the co-founder role was, um, my business partner, Bob Fish, uh, they, uh, he approached me about becoming a manager at their second store. And, you know, I, I really didn't have any intentions or designs to be in the coffee business at that point, but, you know, we sat down and talked and, 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 um, it's become somewhat infamous now, but we ended up, instead of sitting at a table doing interview style, uh, we ended up going for a walk and, uh, that walk ended up lasting about four hours. At the end of that walk, we shook hands and agreed to start a new company, uh, that would be the company that we would use to grow the brand, uh, Big B Coffee. And so, I did that. I uh, resigned my position at the university the next day and, uh, and I went headlong into the coffee business. Wow. That's, that's a great story. And, and, um, if I understand correctly, has this been a story of franchising? Did you franchise or do you own the, no, we did. We, we franchised it. So, you know, that was, that was a big part of, uh, our history was, you know, we didn't, we didn't really know what franchising was, uh, we had two stores and I mean, we knew what it was, of course, at a cursory level, but we, I mean, we didn't know the, the ins and outs of it. And so, uh, but people kept calling us, asking us where we were founded or where, where our headquarters were and did we franchise. And as a, as a young upstart brand, it didn't take that many of those phone calls for us to consider franchising. <laughs> and, right. and then we were real fortunate because we had a woman in town uh, who had started a franchise, a very successful franchise called Two Men in a Truck. And uh, Mary Ellen Sheets is her name. And she, uh, you know, she, she took us under her wing uh, to a degree and, and mentored us and talked us through franchising and what it might look like. And, uh, and so, yeah, we, we went all in on, on franchising at that point. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's a different, it's a very different business model. Uh, we, we do things, uh, we're not a retailer, right? We support people in developing retail businesses, which is a, is a different animal than actually running retail stores. Right, right. And, uh, you know, it is, it's challenging. I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned uh, education, which is, I've been an entrepreneur, but I've also an educator and taught entrepreneurship. And it's really fascinating how that field has grown and, and what we taught in it in the early years versus what we're teaching now. Um, and so it's, uh, it's really interesting. And I think it's really interesting in today's world, given the whole freelance economy. Uh, so many people working freelance and so many people that maybe weren't uh, thinking about being entrepreneurs that are now thinking about it being entrepreneurs. And franchising is certainly uh, a way into that. But a lot of the students and the entrepreneurs I talk to want to franchise, but you know they haven't proven out their original concept. And I think that's probably a big challenge. So um, you waited until you got the message from the market that it was time to do that? Yeah, I think, you know, um, <laughs> that would make that process uh, seem clean and simple. Uh, but, you know, uh, for us, uh, it was a way to, to grow the brand. For many years, we we were, we both operated company-owned stores and 
uh, franchised. Um, it, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, with some tutelage from uh, Fred DeLuca from the Subway Sandwich Corporation, uh, he uh, coached us uh, through to selling our corporate stores and just becoming purely a franchisor. Uh, and so, yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating environment. Uh, you know, you you end up with so many. It's an eclectic group, and everybody has some definitely a degree of success in some other environment uh, before they come into a franchise. And so you have a really powerful group of people with extraordinary experience uh, in, in the world who become part of your team. And that is, uh, you know, to me, that's one of the major reasons why franchises thrive uh, is, is that community of people. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I know we're going to talk about people because I've read enough about your philosophy that people are the the key ingredient. But I want to back up first to understand a little bit more about your decision making when you decided that this was an opportunity you wanted to pursue. You were a young man. Uh, you had your whole career in front of you. Was it because coffee was becoming a great industry or was it that relationship with Bob that you were building on that prior to and during that four hour walk? Or was it just kind of luck? Uh, you know, <laughs> or a little bit of all of these? Well, we were, we were talking the other day, uh, my wife and I were talking the other day about I have a 17 year old son and, and he's, he's seemingly sort of following in my footsteps uh, in some ways. And, you know, she's like, I just, I just worry so much that he's going to compare himself to you and, and, and what you've done in the world. And, and I said, you know, so much of what I've been able to do has been luck. Right. And, and I'll be the first one to admit that. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I hope that takes a, a little bit of pressure off him maybe, but you know, the, the idea of going into this business and looking back on it at that moment in time, I think one of the fundamentals was I really enjoyed the business. I really enjoyed being a barista. I really enjoyed being in the store and, and being able to have a, you know, just a, a, a little influence on people in their morning to you know put a little pep in their step and send them on their way uh, and, and hopefully give them a good start to the day right I just and I didn't really know that hospitality was in my in my my genes at that point but it it really is uh, and so you know I loved the business and so that was that's a good foundation uh, and then I also sensed a real opportunity and that's twofold one it didn't take a rocket scientist and 1996 to see what was going to be happening in the coffee business. Uh, Starbucks had left Seattle. They were making a, a massive push into Chicago. Uh, it was going extremely well for them. Uh, but then I think probably the number one factor was that I knew and understood that my business partner was doing something very different in coffee than anybody else. And the quick summary on that is, is that he came out of the high volume restaurant business and he was running coffee shops as if they were high volume restaurants, not cute, quaint, uh, little coffee shops. And so that brought a whole bunch of efficiency to our world, uh, and made us way more competitive, uh, way more efficient, uh, than, than anybody else in the marketplace. And I still believe that's true today. Uh, and so I sensed that opportunity. And then there was also just the connection with my partner. I mean, we formed this company on a handshake and, you know, that's how we've always done business. So, so 27 years later, we've never one time pulled out an agreement or a contract. We resolve all of our issues, uh, one-on-one, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's an incredibly intelligent, uh, 
person, um, both, you know, emotionally, uh, and, and then just this sort of cognitive abilities. And so, you know, it's, uh, it, a lot of that's luck though. <laughs> and so anyway, that, that's really how I ended up, uh, in the business. Well, you know, I think, I mean, uh, you're right. There is, uh, there's always luck in that, that formula. Uh, but there is also, uh, there, I mean, when you talk about recognizing opportunity, you, you found something you were passionate about and interested in. So for people out there, I think that are trying to say, is this the right opportunity for me? That's an important ingredient. The other is timing. Because no matter what, timing has a lot to do with it. And we've seen plenty of evidence of that um, in things that failed because the timing wasn't right. But then the other ingredients of providing value and, and uh, you know, a, a, good, um, a good financial model that you saw and, and your partnership. And, and not everybody can make a partnership work. So I do want to dig into that, but you had something else. You well, I was just going to comment that, that, you know, the other, the other piece of this is, is, and I'll quote my, uh, my mother here, you make the decision and then you work to make sure that that was the right decision. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's not always about the decision. It's, it's how you engage that moving forward. And I, I think that my partnership uh, that resonates for me in relation to my partnership because it hasn't always been perfect and there's there's been issues that we've had to deal with but you know being committed to the partnership and making it work that's that's the end result uh, of that decision and we're committed to it well, let's talk about that a little bit because a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are aspiring entrepreneurs or they are practicing entrepreneurs and my guess is they're going to have relationship challenges, whether it's a partner or someone else uh, that there were a, a direct co-founder or whether it's some other kind of partnership. So how talk about talk about that partnership a little bit. You said you've, it hasn't always been perfect. Can you share with us some of the some of the ways that that partnership has grown and been challenged maybe over the years. And this has been how many years? Uh, you said mid nineties. Yeah. So we, yeah. we, on a handshake, it was spring of 96. Um, we actually, no, I'm sorry, spring of 97. And then we actually formed the company in June of 98. Okay. And so been a long time. 15, 15 years or. Uh, I think it's 25. 20, 25, 25. <laughs> time yeah. goes yeah, quick. We're, we're in 23. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Do my math. Yeah. 20. 25 years. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, what I, I address this topic square on, uh, with, a, a, a some work I did on my, with grind, uh, the book and there, I, I listed, you can find it on LinkedIn, but I, I listed 20 questions that any partnership, uh, should answer before they go into a partnership together. And it amazes me. And I've watched this over the years and, you know, you have to, you have to, um, remember that my life for, for 20 years was, and has been facilitating partnerships, you know? So, so our franchise owners, so many of them are partnerships. And so trying to set them up in a, in a healthy way has been a big part of our role. And, and so, you know, it's amazing to me how people will go into partnerships and never have any, what I would call real conversations. And, you know, the things that I've seen over the years, it's, it's pretty mind blowing. Uh, and so, um, I think that 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 list, that twenty question list, is would be an important place for people to go, and commit to having 
going through that list and answering those questions with their potential partner. And, you know, there's questions on there. It's, uh, you know, it's all about roles and, and so much of it is about ego. And then it's also about, uh, you know, financial capability. It's also about like when you are successful, what are you going to do with the proceeds of the company? Are you going to reinvest? Are you going to take it out? Uh, what, you know, very personal, very personal things. And I find that most people don't have those conversations and I find that pretty mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what happens, it's kind of like a premarital, you know, you, you don't want to see any of that yeah, right. stuff. <laughs> you know, you want this thing to work so badly. You don't want to deal with that. Well, let me ask you about operating agreements. Um, you know, did you put most of that in writing? Oh, we did. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and we, you know, we have some pretty unconventional stuff in our agreements. Uh, and, and, you know, one, one of the things that we put in our agreement is, and I advocate everybody doing this is agree to a, a timeline around, if you leave the business within X number of years, you get no part of your initial investment back. And so what that means is by signing this, you are making a five-year commitment to this minimum. And if you want to pull out within five years, you, you can't, I mean, you can, but you don't get any of your money back because, you know, these things take so much longer than people expect them to. And, you know, if you aren't making a five to seven to 10 year commitment to this business, I don't want to do it with you. Yeah. I also advocate for no exit clauses. Don't plan your exit. Don't plan your exit. Like, like you're going to go into this with, with the exit in mind. I find that to be an incredibly unhealthy conversation. Uh, and so now I know lawyers out there are, would beat their fist on the table, uh, for me advocating not to, to predetermine exit clauses, you know, an exit in the end, at the end of the day ends up being one big negotiation anyway. And so just have that negotiation at that time. Yeah. Don't, you know, and so I, I think that, um, uh, what, what else is in these operating agreements? Um, nothing's really coming to mind on that for me right now. Well, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about, you were talking about timing and in today's world, I think, you know, a lot of people think, well, three to five years, I want to exit. Or even if you're getting a big investor, you know, they're looking for, uh, you know, an exit in a, the sooner, the better <laughs> a lot of times. So, um, so you've been, as you pointed out, 25 years with this. And, um, you know, I think I did read in your, right in the beginning of this new book you've written, you talked about this 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 whole mindset of building a business and staying with it and growing it when you went into this did you think in those terms or uh is that something that you've learned uh, through this process because you know i think a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand that or they yeah. don't expect that let me put it that way for sure um gary v does a great spot on this uh and he talks about speed is the devil and, and when people come in and that's, that's why, you know, I, I am, uh, I, I don't like the concept of launch, uh, get to stability, scale and liquidate. Uh, and, and, you know, to me, it, that, that mindset, there's only one thing that you're focused on then is your net worth at liquidation. And I find that to be a really, really, um, you know, not inspirational motivation. If an organization is built to simply make the shareholder rich, I think there's a whole bunch of bad decisions to get made. 
uh, short term short term decisions that get made, and I think people in those environments often suffer. And so, uh, I I I am more of an advocate of a business enterprise uh, that is has a long term vantage point uh, that's looking at we're advocates of the stakeholder capitalism model uh, where you're taking into account all six stakeholders as you grow your business and that the shareholder is not supreme. Uh, and so, you know, I think that entrepreneurship uh, today uh, in our culture has a, a really, uh, a really bad rap uh, that, that really entrepreneurship's about getting rich. It's like, no, entrepreneurship's about adding value to our communities, adding value to our society, solving problems, uh, significant problems in the world. And yeah, we should all make a living doing that. And yeah, sometimes it's, uh, you can build great wealth and that's great. I, I am not opposed to to wealth, uh, but I, I just feel like the short-term perspective on you know, let's build it, scale it, liquidate it and, you know, go sit on a beach somewhere in Tahiti. It's like, well, what's the point of that? <laughs> you know, like, uh, and so, uh, I guess we all want to be rich, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a whole heck of a lot more that we can be doing and that we should be doing. And by the way, that is the topic of my third book, just a, a little foreshadowing there. So, so that Good. is, that is the topic of my, of my, the third book in the series. That's, that's fantastic. So I love, uh, I love your, your mindset around this. I don't think it's common today. Um, you know, and I think it's our society, we move very quickly through everything. And so this idea of a very long-term perspective, um, I think you see this some in businesses that are built more for family businesses, you know, for generational kind of, uh, 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 value add. And I'm just curious, uh, you mentioned your son, is, is your son going to come into your business or is he going to do something else? Or is that still, uh, you know, question <laughs> well, you're getting right into the heart of it. I love it. I love it. That's such a, um, important part of my world and, and the short answer, and we'll, we'll see if you want to dive into this or not, but the short answer is, is no, my children will not be coming into the business. And second, my children will not be inheriting any of my wealth. And so I do, my, my personal opinion is that I want my children to pursue their passions and I want them to know when they're my age, I'm 51, that what they've built is theirs and that they didn't get it because they had a rich dad. And, uh, and so that for good or for good or for bad. Right. So, so at 51, if it's a big mess, it's not my fault, <laughs> uh, but if they're, if they're, if they've had great success in whatever they pursue, uh, then that's theirs to own as well. And, you know, I, I, um, I have pretty strong opinions around multi-generational companies. And, you know, why would I think that my children would want to be in the coffee business? I think that's an incredible presumption that uh, they should pursue their passions and they should go after what they want in life. So at the end of the day, they have fulfillment and they just didn't live up to some expectation that I laid down for them. Yeah. Do you, do you have family conversations about this? I've had, yeah, we have. And <laughs> that, my kids are, my kids are, are, you know, my older, I have a 17 year old, a 16 year old, a six year old and a three year old. And I haven't talked to the six year old and the three year old yet, but uh, yeah, the older ones, early. Yeah, but the, <laughs> but the older ones are, um, uh, are, are, you know, they're, they're telling me they're, they're good with it. And, and, um, you know, my, my wife came to me at one point, she said, so even if one of them came to you with some great business idea, like you wouldn't invest, I said, if it's a great business idea, it'll get funded. 
period. Yeah. You know, so, but I have had the conversations with them. They're good. Like my son wants to be an artist. Uh, and I just love that. Uh, I want to, I want to support him in every way I can, um, to, to become the artist he wants to be in the world. And so when I mentioned him stepping into my footsteps, you know, he's, he's taken a, a try. I sailed around the world when I was 15 years old and, uh, on a, on a program up in Canada called class afloat. And, uh, he's applying to do that. And then he's also really interested in the, the college I went to. And so that's what I mean by kind of stepping into my shoe. But, but at the same time, like the college I went to is awesome. And I like, I could never tell one of my kids not to go there if they wanted to go there. And, and then of course this class flow thing is pretty cool too. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, what you're talking about is empowering your children really. And I think that's, it's, it's hard to do at times because we don't want to see them struggle, but struggle is part of the entire process. And I'm going to dig into that here in a little bit with your struggles, because those are always the stories that everybody wants to hear. Um, it makes us all feel more human, but allowing our children to struggle. I have, I have two grandchildren and, and uh, you know, they, they, uh, they are different from me and that's fine. They're different from their dad. And um, that's good. That's good. It's sometimes hard uh, to let our children be who they are, I think. Uh, but it sounds like you've got a handle on it and, and you're not struggling with it. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, it's it's the the biggest source of anxiety I have in my life. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and so um, but but getting them on a, on a solid foundation and and uh, becoming healthy uh, adults, uh, emotionally healthy adults. I mean, that's the biggest source of anxiety I have. Yeah, I know. I know the feeling. And it doesn't go away. It doesn't matter how old they are. I know. That's the worst part. My mom told me that too. I was like, oh gosh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, so it, it, uh, let's talk a little bit on a, a related level about succession because I know you have some very strong perspectives on your employees and on working with the people in your company. And as a franchise uh, company, you've got sort of a different uh, model uh, than a lot of the companies that I talk to, but I'm very curious about how people in your company might, ha what kind of opportunities do they have? What are, what are your, what's your mindset around developing uh, your employees, which are one of your uh, stakeholders, of course? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, I, I believe organizations and companies should pick one stakeholder to really focus on. Um, it's, it's sort of my little nuance on the whole thing. I mean, if we, we need to be supporting all six stakeholders and, and equally from a decision-making process, but we should be making an investment in one stakeholder and, and ours is people and our purpose is to support you in building a life that you love, Wh whoever you are, however we interact with you, however our, you know, our company engages you, uh, we're here to support you in building a life that you love. So, um, and then our vision in terms of like, so, so a purpose is why you're showing up to work. The vision is something that you can put out in the future that if you accomplish it, you can fully believe that you are living up to your purpose. And so our vision is to improve workplace culture in America. And we believe that the workplace is an area that, that, can be and should be a nurturing environment for people, a place where they come to develop personally and professionally, and that uh, we need to build environments um, where people thrive. 
And, you know, the workplace today, unfortunately, for so many people is a, is a place that is of, that causes great anxiety. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we have this uh, linear um, uh, model built where the, the number one cause of death in the United States is chronic disease. The number one factor in chronic disease is stress and anxiety. The number one and two factors in stress and anxiety are workplace and finances. Well, workplaces and workplace culture and finance is something that we as leaders of private enterprise can take on directly. And so we, we have this, this purpose and this vision that is really ultimately taking on the leading cause of death in the United States. And, and so that's a, that's a massive endeavor, right? And that's what my, that's what my book, the second book is all, is really truly all about is, is developing a workplace uh, where people can come in in the morning and leave more inspired when they go home at night, Uh, a workplace where they're working on their own personal development. And, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to develop teams of people who are superheroes in their own world and ours as well. Uh, and so that is, um, that's what we're up to. Uh, I lost the thread on the original question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I kind of went down a rabbit hole there, but, uh, and so, you know, I, I, oh, so, so, um, it was about people development. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and there's just, um, I could, I could talk for a half hour. I'll let you take me down the path you want, want me. Well, yeah, I, th- I think I originally asked you about succession. So, uh, you know, with the question, maybe uh, I-, I think you gave me the broader answer, which I want to dig into. But I think that the originally, you know, are there opportunities for for employees to move up so that someday, I mean, you and Bob will at some point, uh, you hope that, let me say this, I'm sure you I would guess that you hope the business lasts beyond you. So, you know, what, what does that look like for employees? Do you, and I guess in today's environment, it's such a different, oh, we have such a different um, practice. I mean, when you and I were, well, me especially, but you also, you're younger than me, but w- when we were younger, you didn't leave an employer uh, every year. Otherwise nobody was going to hire you. And now it's very common to go from company to company to company. So, um, you know, I guess, uh, I'm just curious about your thoughts yeah. on that and, 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 uh, what you all do around, uh, employee retention and, and, and development. Well, uh, you know, again, you've, you've, the, the question kind of gets right to the heart of the matter because that is the succession conversation is the premise of grow my second book. And, the book is meant to take you on this journey from bootstrapping entrepreneur to all the way through to what I'm calling irrelevance. And irrelevance means that you are not, you are not necessary to be involved as the entrepreneur, to be involved in the business for the business to thrive into the future. And that arc goes from bootstrapping entrepreneur to effective leader to irrelevance. And so that in that irrelevance piece is to me is abs, is everything because the, the, if, if, if the work I do goes away and the business I've created goes away when I'm gone, well, then what was the point of it all? Was the point of it all that my grandkids don't have to worry about their college educations? I'm sorry. I'm here to do more than that. 
right? Uh, and and I want my life to be more meaningful than that. And so what what we're doing, and I'm going to get to your specific question here in a second, but what what I'm doing, what my partner is doing is we have both designated uh, organizations that our net worth, basically our ownership in the business, will be contributed to when we pass. And so if you're in my organization and you're working, you know that if we increase the incremental value of the company by X, that that incremental increase will go to this organization. And then you can look at that organization and see if that's something you believe in. And if it is wonderful, and if it isn't, then okay, then maybe you should go on and find something else to work on. And so that is, that is, that's our plan. Uh, it's fairly nascent at the moment. Uh, I do have in my will, I do have an organization picked, but I, I would like to develop that further, uh, and, and understand, the impact of that organization and, and what it's going to have. I, I believe in it, but I, anyway, that I'm going in the, in the weeds there now, specifically to employees, what we're trying to do is we're trying to support them in developing a life that they love and develop their passions. And, and that's what the lion's share of our uh, focus is on. We have, you know, that from a traditional standpoint, uh, you know, I was a huge advocate of making equity available to everybody in the organization. And I built out this relatively complex <laughs> model to do all of that. And it's been sitting on the back burner now for about three years. Uh, and everyone, my lawyer, uh, lawyers, uh, accountant, everybody's telling me that it's crazy. Like, it's crazy. You can't do it. You shouldn't do it. You can't do it. You know, to actually have to physically buy out somebody uh, who resigns in a, in a, like say, a relatively junior position in the organization. Like it's just an administrative nightmare, a burden. You got taxes, you know, so on and so forth. So, you know, we did put that on on hold. And then we are bringing in a, um, uh, we just brought in a, a high level CFO into the organization. And it's one of the things that I've challenged her to take on is, is we need to, have people have the ability to build wealth within the organization. We're not a publicly traded company. We're not going to become a publicly traded company. So how do we do that? And, um, but then I think that that stuff is, is important, but I don't think that that's the kind of thing that gets somebody to commit their life to an organization. I think the stuff that, that gets people to commit their life to an organization are the things like purpose and vision, but also we have developed an entire team of some of our most senior level people uh, in the organization that's called the Life You Love Laboratory, or in short, Life Lab. And what Life Lab is has been created to do is to to work with our employees, and ultimately, at the end of the day, we hope other organizations will call us to have have that team come into their organization. But we've built a whole curriculum around that we, we believe there's four pillars that you need to have in place in order to be able to build the life that you love. So we've developed a curriculum classes for each one of those pillars. That's made available to everybody in the organization at no charge. Uh, and, um, and there, there's a whole, there's all, we have, uh, what are called forums, uh, 
think of these as support mm-hmm. groups, right? Yep. Um, I'm, yep. I'm a member of an organization called YPO and that's where that, that came from, uh, is, is the forums. Uh, but we have forums for our franchise owners. We have forums for, uh, employees, um, you know, we do things like every five years, you get a three month paid sabbatical. Uh, and there's absolutely no requirement of you, uh, except to go figure out your passion. And, and, you know, people, um, there's a, there's this mentality, uh, in, in employment that it's so hard to find people. Like if you could just find the right people, that mentality is pure bunk. It's bunk. You don't find people. You create an environment that people want to be a part of and thrive within. And if you do that, you're going to have no problem attracting and finding employees. And so you know, when somebody comes into our world, they might work with us for three, five, however many years, and they might come to us and they've decided that they want to go pursue some other passion. They want to go do something else in the world. Well, that's a moment that we high five them and celebrate the fact that they have found their passion and that they that they found something that truly drives them and inspires them in the world. And like that's a that's a high five moment in our world. That's not looked at as a as a negative. And from a traditional management standpoint, that whole everything I just went through is heresy. You mean to tell me you're going to put all of these resources and and and, and provide all of these classes and and do training and get somebody ramped up? And then they're going to leave you and you're going to celebrate that? Absolutely. Because that environment is an environment that people want to be a part of. Yeah. Wow. You know, there's so much there to kind of (laughs) dig into. I have to go back to your model of, uh, you know, building and growing and and then irrelevance. And uh, I just, to bring it full circle, that's kind of what we try to do as parents, I think as well. (laughs) Um, And uh, so it's, uh, you know, I, I, I really am impressed with this, this model and this mindset. It's not easy. And I'm curious about how this developed. Is this something that, you know, that, you and Bob talked about in your first four hours uh, of walking, uh, maybe not to the level it is now. I mean, or, or did this, uh, you know, deciding that you were going to focus on on one of your stakeholders primarily, one would have primacy, which I think brings some focus. It kind of gives you a North Star uh, with decision making, which I've always believed in. You know, you yeah, really kind of have to have that. Uh, because decisions come fast and they're challenging. And um, so uh, talk up just a few minutes about how this evolved. Yeah. So um, I would give not anything. I would give a lot to have a recording of the converse, four hour conversation that happened 20, <laughs> 20 yeah. 27 years ago. Uh, and, but I don't have that. And, and um but I think that this particular, from leadership to irrelevance, that curve, I think it's pretty natural to know and understand that you need to go from bootstrapping entrepreneur to leader. And that is, a, that is a, an arduous transition that many entrepreneurs can't make. Uh, my book addresses that head on. And then from leader, where you're running the day-to-day and you're, you're overseeing uh, the team, to irrelevance, I think that piece is is somewhat, you know, unconventional to a degree, but it came from the fact that 
I think that a lot of entrepreneurs and leaders, they, they become quite insecure in their ability to build something that's going to live beyond them. And so what they do then is they bring in professionals, they bring in private equity, uh, they bring in a strategic partner that's going to bring them the expertise and so on to make that transition. And so the conversation that Bob and I had was, well, you know, the stuff they do is not rocket science <laughs> and it's really not. And, and why can't we just do that ourselves and maintain hundred percent equity of the business? And so that was really how that came to be is, is we, we went through two years ago, we went through uh, the process of evaluating investment banks, um, potentially uh, going to the market and bringing in outside equity. Um, and that, a lot of that had to do with mitigating some risk, some personal risk for our, for, for us, but that that's never really been our thing. Like we're giving it all away anyway. So at the end of the day, whether we give away X or we give away X plus Y, well, <laughs> you know, of course we want to have as much impact and give away as much as we can. But so, so, so the motivation to bring in outside equity was low. And so then it became, well, why can't we do that ourselves? and do the things that a professional private equity or a, a, a someone, a strategic partner would do inside of our organization, why can't we do that ourselves? Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. I think the one challenge for some people is they can't step back enough and, um, and the insecurity that you mentioned. Um, Can I comment you know, on I that? Yeah, go ahead. The issue there is that we believe as entrepreneurs and as leaders that nobody can do it better than us. And, and that is, that is a, I mean, a huge defect because there are people and many, many people that can do the job better than you can. And once you get over that hurdle and you lose the arrogance around the fact that you are, the most capable, you understand the industry and the business better than anyone else. Once you get over that hurdle, then you can begin to make the transition. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen it many, many times. And there's, uh, there's a, this great model that uh, it was written back in the seventies about organizational change. And, um, it, 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 it speaks to this very uh, topic, but I think one of the big challenges is, and, and this, this, you know, this, this particular model uh, by Larry Greiner actually, um, you know, posited the, a concept that basically the, the very activities that are required in the earliest stages, which means you have to pay attention to every detail, you have to do everything, <laughs> become the things that undermine you uh, and, and destroy your ability to succeed if you don't change in the next phase. That's, and yeah. so, and I think it's the same thing, you know, through, throughout the life of an organization. And so it's, it's not, what we're talking about here is not easy. You're right. Getting over ourselves is, is what we have to do, <laughs> but it's also not easy because what's worked up to a certain point will not be what works in the next phase. And, but being able to recognize that is what allows an organization, I think, to make that to make that transition. And I'm sure if you looked, or I, I would guess if you looked back at your, your company and your growth, that you could 
you could identify a number of transition points. And uh, you might have evolved along, the name of this article is Evolution and Revolution. So basically, organizations evolve, and then there's a, you know, crisis usually. <laughs> and that crisis will often lead us to change. And um, so anyway, I, I, I love where you're going with this and the wisdom, I think, for anybody that's out there trying to run a business. And, and I really love that your book talks about going from chaos to calm. And I'm, I'm wondering, did, did the early years feel like chaos to you? Because you seem very grounded and calm as we talk today. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, your point is, again, it's so salient because I worry uh, that when I do things like this uh, on podcasts and I and I talk about this stuff, I worry that my perspective is so different than what your perspective needs to be like in startup or in early stage uh, development. And, be, you know, I, no, my gosh, we were crazy maniacal, crazy, you know, and, and I could tell you stories that it's just, it was, uh, I mean, <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's one of my concerns about doing this work is, is that I, I, my perspective is 27 years in with a, with a fairly significant business on my hands. Now that's not the perspective you need to have when you're launching or when you're in your first few years of trying to get the business to have traction. But the key is exactly what you said, which is you have to be able to make these transitions if you want the business to grow and thrive. And one of the things I'm most proud about in my work in both books is that I start both books with this concept of due diligence. And that's a really common, you know, concept. But the, the different twist that I bring to that is, is that we do hours and hours and hours of due diligence, but we leave out the most significant factor in due diligence, which is due diligence on ourselves as the entrepreneur or as the leader. And what we need to be doing is we need to be understanding how how we as individual people, because everyone's different, how are we going to impact this business? And what do we need to do to supplement our weaknesses and take advantage of our strengths? And that, that, that concept of the leader, the entrepreneur doing due diligence, becoming more aware of how they're impacting their organization and their people is mission critical to the success of the organization. Yeah. Self-awareness. So I, I have to ask you, do you have personal self-awareness uh, practices that you bring to play? Uh, I mean, certainly there's a, a, a bunch of them out there and people can meditate, they can journal, they can go through therapy. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts for the uh, entrepreneur? Absolutely. So uh, my concept on this is that as a leader, the number one mentor for you, we all think of mentorship as sort of old wise people that have been through it. Well, they don't know anything about you or your business for the most part. And so what, what I talk about is that the number one mentor you have as a leader is your team. And when you interact with your team, you think you know the impact you're having. You have no idea. You have no idea the impact you're having unless you ask. And the only way you can ask and get a true answer is if you've built a relationship with each member of your team in such a way with so much trust that they can bring you the real stuff. 
So as an example, I, I've always in my brain thought of myself as a relatively humble and simple person. I didn't know that most people on my team thought I was an arrogant prick. <laughs> now the prick part's probably a little strong, but, but that, that, that they perceived me as quite arrogant. And that was so far from my own understanding of who I was in the world. And when they brought that to me, I mean, that rocked my world for like a year, you know, just trying to get through that. And, and so awareness is understanding the impact you're having on the other person. And, and when you understand the impact you're having on the other person, then you're becoming aware. And the only way to understand the impact you're having on the other person is to ask them and then do your very best to get reality and truth from their perspective. And, and is this a regular process? I mean, do you build it into your process? Because uh, it, it's hard sometimes. I, I, I get called the velvet hammer and I think <laughs> I'm just a really nice, easy going person, but uh, evidently <laughs> not all the time. Well, I think that, um, one, you have to be willing to bring them value first and you have to make investments in them first. And again, it's sort of a reverse take on employment. Uh, but then at the same time, by bringing them value first, I think that then you can ask them to bring value to you. The other thing that's so critical is to communicate with them the stuff that you're working on so they can be on the lookout for behaviors that are, you know, signs of, of, um, of that change or lack thereof, I guess. And so to me, that is such a, it's so such an important part of it is being vulnerable enough to say, that I am working on, you know, another example of this was I, for many years, I would go into command and control mode. And I, I mean, when that clicked in, it was like, I mean, I knew every answer. No one could say a word. We were going to do it my way, period. And so I lived that way for a very long time. And so we got into that and, and it's unhealthy. It's terribly unhealthy uh, for the team. And so we got into it and then we realized that I would go into that mode when I was scared. And so now that's a hard thing for a leader to admit. It, I mean, how many leaders out there would say, I'm scared right now? You know, I have fear based around what's going on. And so then what happened was when I would go into command and control mode, and by the way, this wasn't like a one afternoon conversation. This was like a two year conversation, yeah, right, but, right. but, but when I would go into command and control mode, then members of my team that I had built significant trust would say, okay, Mike, it certainly feels like you're going into command and control here. Let's, let's dive into what you're scared of. What, what's causing fear? And then that would end up being a really healthy conversation because yeah. I, I do have inherent understanding of the business. And so when I get scared, there's probably something there that we should be looking at. But when I go into command and control mode, we're certainly not going to figure that piece out. But when we would have the conversation of what I'm scared of, generally speaking, that would unearth something that was really important. 
And, and so, but I mean, that's, that's how, uh, you get the feedback you need and then being vulnerable, vulnerable enough to say, this is the stuff I'm working on. And if you see behaviors that don't represent that well, I beg you to bring them to me. Yeah, that that's powerful. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, when you, when you can do that as a leader, I think it's incredibly uh, powerful and transformational for your employees and for you yeah. uh, as a leader. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't come overnight for anybody out there listening to this. I think I'm sure this came with, with a lot of a lot of soul searching and a lot of conversation and a lot of experiences. And and that kind of leads me to, you know, I I said early I talked earlier about failure, and um, you know I I know that failure is almost always a, a part of any success story. So I'm curious about two things around failure. One. Um, you know, how do you approach failure? Do you have any failure stories, maybe an initial fa early failure that was a big learning lesson for you? And then how do you uh, so approach your own failure? Let's put it that way. And then how do you as a company approach the failure of those that, that um, operate within your company? Because when we shut down people because of failure, they're not going to take any risks or try anything new or be innovative. Um, so what, what, are, what are your thoughts on failure and what, what about some experiences there? Yeah, we've had, them. Um, I mean, we've had significant ones, uh, no doubt. We were put in default by our bank at one point and, you know, until you've been put in default by your bank, you don't really understand the power of a bank. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, that was, that was something and we made mistakes. I mean, you know, and looking back on it, um, it really changed and, and sort of revolutionized how we approached bankers and banking. And that is, you have to treat them with an incredible amount of respect and treat them like a partner uh, in the business and be fully transparent. And that we weren't. And that's how we ended up in default. Had we gone to them and explained to them things we were doing, uh, things that we wanted to do and let them weigh in, they wouldn't have let us do the stuff that we were doing. Uh, and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> you know, I, maybe, I don't know. You know, I look back on, on failures too, and it's like, well, I'm pretty happy with where things are. And so would I, have, would I if I could go back and change that experience, like in the moment, for sure, I would have changed it. But now looking back on it, uh, I mean, we've got a much different and better relationship with our bankers because of that experience. And, and, you know, I know that our bankers hold us in high regard now, and we've got just a, a really dynamic, uh, relationship there. So, but that, that was, I mean, it was brutal, uh, going through it. I mean, absolutely brutal. Uh, so, you know, that's a failure. Uh, you know, we, um, I don't dwell on failures. I just, I, somehow I've, I've, got uh, something in my my DNA that I treat the business like it's a, a really complex dynamic three-dimensional game of monopoly and so when 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 difficult things come which they always do it's just about resolving them and and getting through them in the healthiest way possible and you know so um I don't dwell on I mean, I, I am, I work so hard to not get involved in, in drama, uh, and people's stories and their, their own, you know, version of reality that just, if you, if you dwell on that stuff, like it, it'll tear you up, uh, you know, make the right decisions, do the right things, feel good, feel confident about what you're doing and, and 
do the best you can, be a good person and move forward. Failures are, they happen all the time. Uh, and, and so, I, you know, we have so many, um, now, how do we deal with failure in the organization? Like I just had a conversation this morning with the president of our company and, and there was a, what I would call a pretty significant misstep uh, in the last few months. And, you know, I, I just asked, I said, ultimately at the end of the day, who, who was responsible for this process? And there really wasn't an answer. And ultimately he said, well, I, I guess at the end of the day, me being the president of the company, I'm like, so you know, that, that to me is a failure. Uh, and, and we had a, I think a healthy conversation. I'll have to check back in with them, but you know, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, by committee didn't work. And, and so like, that was a, that was a failure. I think he's acknowledging that it was, you know, he also brought some real opinions around why it failed and how it failed and so on. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, failure to me is just so, such a natural part of what we do. And if, if you can't accept that, I mean, you, you can't, you can't operate a business. Yeah. <laughs> Failures just yeah. happen every day, all the time, but you know, they're there. You learn from them, you, 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 and you move on. Um, I, I'm a huge advocate of design thinking which is failure supposed to happen. Uh, you want it failure to happen quickly. You, you just, and then you, you, you take that into your decision-making moving forward. And the more you can decide, the more you can fail, the more you learn, and then the better you'll get at the end of the day. Yeah. 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 I love that too. And uh, I think it was Liz Smith I heard who was formerly the, the CEO at the uh, brand here in Tampa, where I'm located. She, she, she said their philosophy was autopsy without blame. Um, so, you know, I think what, what I heard you say is that you tried to figure out what you could do differently next time. And, 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 uh, the, the person that your president, you know, was already talking about some learnings from that. Well, he brought it to me, <laughs> you know, yeah. he, you know, so, so he brought it to, to my, my partner and I, and, and it was really to get our opinion and to, to, to talk about, uh, you know, maybe what went wrong and, and how to do it better next time. And so, so he, he brought the failure to me and that. Which is value. And that's really important oh, also, I think, yeah. because I know a lot, I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs who have taken money from investors or they have outside, um, uh, stakeholders that they don't share information with and because they're hoping that it will go away and it doesn't. Oh my gosh. So, makes my yeah, stomach, it. that concept yeah. makes my stomach turn. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, the whole concept of hope it goes away. Oh yeah. man. Yeah. 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 It's a dangerous, uh, but common, I think, especially when you're trying to in the chaos of a startup. Mm -hmm. So I really, I love, uh, I love everything that you've shared. I think you've been, Mike, you've just been great today to share so many wonderful lessons over 27 years of, of this company. Now, before we close, you started with, you started in the original location there. And so how many franchise locations do you have now? And, and, you know, how's the company grown over those 27 years? Well, it, you know, it's, uh, it's been a long road, uh, and, and sure we, we have a pretty dynamic organization today, but you know, we've been focused on this 
that's all we've done in 27 years of focus. Uh, so we have, we have 359 stores open. Uh, probably the more interesting number is, is that we have, I think it's 151 or 152 stores under contract to be opened. And those aren't development schedules. Those are signed franchise contracts that there are requirements around performance, meaning they have to find a lease and get open within, you know, uh, 18 to 24 months. And so that's 150 stores that will be opening for sure over the next, uh, over the next two years. And then, uh, you know, there'll be more added to that list. So, you know, it's, it's a really, really dynamic enterprise. Uh, we have incredible growth. Uh, we're growing, I think 27.3% this year on, you know, a baseline of uh, over $300 million. And, and like, so it, it, there's a lot going on. Uh, but I, you know, I'm proud to say that my life's pretty calm. And, and that's the whole, I couldn't write the book <laughs> unless, you know, unless I, I had gotten it there, you know, and, 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 uh, my, my life is, is really calm and I enjoy doing stuff like this. I enjoy writing. I enjoy teaching. Uh, I enjoy speaking. I'm, I'm, I'm a budding speaker. I'm developing a keynote address, uh, taking on a lot of the topics we've talked about today. Uh, you know, and, and this has been a great interview. You were able to get to like three or four really, really key messages that I love to talk about. And uh, you brought them up, <laughs> which I love, right? So, so this has been great. I appreciate it. Well, it's it's been a delight on my part, and and uh, I sense that you you mentioned that you're calm, and I sense that you're very grounded, and that's come from a lot of years of that uh, self reflection and and hard work. So, congratulations to you and Bob, and and it's been a wonderful conversation. I always ask a couple of questions as I as I close. The first one is, if there was one piece of advice, and you've given a lot, but if there was one piece of advice for our listeners knowing that it's a lot of aspiring and, and early stage entrepreneurs, what would that be? Uh, Peter Thiel writes about this in his book called One. And that is understand your primary core product. That's not, hard, that's not I'm sorry, that's not easy to figure out. Understand what your primary core product is and then spend your life focusing on becoming world-class at delivering that. And the key word there is focus. Yeah. And that's hard for a lot of us to do when, we're, when we've got an entrepreneurial mindset because we see opportunity everywhere. Yeah. So that's, that's really great advice. And the second one is, where can our listeners uh, connect with you, find out about your business, uh, find out more about your books, all of the above? I, I know I'm going to read both books. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of- I developed a website, uh, with the launch of grow, uh, it's Michael J McFall, uh, .com. Uh, and, and that's, uh, you can get to all my social media feeds there. Um, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of content there that, that isn't in the books. Uh, so I, I've got a little, a classroom tab, uh, with a whole bunch of stuff that, uh, that I think is important. Um, you know, some feeds to, uh, you know, some video content that the University of Michigan did on, for entrepreneurs, a podcast that I'm involved with uh, through the class I teach at the University of Michigan. There's real value there. Uh, and so that michaeljmcfall.com is, is, uh, is the best place to connect with me. And check out your local Bigby store, Yes, right? please. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. Well, this was a delight. Thank you again, Mike. Oh, my pleasure, Rebecca. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.